Greetings and welcome. On behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute, my name is Michael Le Chevalier. I'm Associate Director of the Institute. Um, our work here is to help make the Christian intellectual tradition a living dialogue partner at the university and within the broader culture. This work is achieved through non-credit courses, lectures, masterclasses with senior scholars like our two distinguished guests and with summer seminars. It's a deep pleasure to bring this event to you tonight as it was among uh, the first suggestions of programming that we had as we pivoted to try and respond to the current pandemic. Um, I'd also like to invite you to tune in later this week for our regular lecture series on reason and wisdom in medieval Christian thought. Thursday's lecture by Kevin Hughes will introduce us to the work of St. Bonaventure. And we will also have a bit of a follow-up to tonight's event um, with uh, a special panel on June 9th at 1 p.m. with Russell Hittinger, Michael Sherwin, and Jen Frey on Christians in Times of Catastrophe, Augustine's City of God. Um, during this time of COVID, uh, we've taken what we regularly offer at the university and try and bring it to broader audiences. We are grateful to all of our co-sponsors who um, have helped to extend the reach of our programming. Um, tonight's event is co-sponsored by America Media, the St. Benedict Institute, the Nova Forum, the Collegium Institute, the Beatrice Institute, the Institute for Faith and Culture, the Harvard Catholic Center, St. Paul's University Catholic Center, and the Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Um, I'm especially excited about uh, tonight's two distinguished scholars um, and uh, Professor Otten and Professor McGinn, I invite you to um, turn on your screens at this time. Um, I'm especially excited not only because um, have both of these scholars played um, key roles uh, throughout their tenure at the University of Chicago um, in um, helping the success of the Institute. Um, Professor McGinn played a, a key role right at the beginning with its founding um, of suggesting an institute like this to our founder, Thomas Levergood. And Professor Otten, a uh, professor of theology at the University of Chicago, is a regular lecturer and co-partner of ours. Um, they also have actually been teachers uh, uh, to me as well. Not only uh, from my undergrad days when I first was introduced to Bernie's work, as many um, on the screen have been, um, but also taking a class with both of them um, on Thomas Aquinas. Um, so they both know each other very well. Um, and I ex am excited about the, the sort of friendly conversation that we can have today between uh, Bertie and Willamy. Uh, Bernard McGinn is Naomi Shenstone, is the Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and the History of Christianity in the Divinity School and the Committees on Medieval Studies and on General Studies at the University of Chicago. He has written extensively about the history of apocalyptic thought, spirituality, and mysticism. Professor McGinn's many books include Antichrist, 2000 Years of the Human Fascination with Evil, The Presence of God, a Multivolume History of Western Christian Mysticism, and most recently, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, a biography. The Professor Wilhelmine Otten is Professor of Theology and the History of Christianity, also in the college, Associate Faculty in the Department of History, Social Sciences Division at the University of Chicago. She holds an MA and a PhD from the University of Amsterdam. Professor Otten studies the history of Christianity and Christian thought with a focus on the Western medieval and the early Christian intellectual tradition, including the continuity of Platonic themes. 
She's co-editor of Erigenia and Creation on Religion and Memory and the Oxford Guide to the Historical Reception of Augustine. Her most recent book is Thinking Nature and the Nature of Thinking from Erigenia to Emerson. Professor Otten is also the director of the Martin Marty Center, co-sponsors for tonight's event. Um, and just one brief word before I disappear for a while. Um, if you have any technical difficulties throughout tonight's event, um, you can always join us with our live stream at our YouTube page, um, which can be found just by visiting the event page on our website. Um, at the end uh, of the conversation between um, Bernie and Wilhelmine, um, there will be a, a period for audience Q&A, at which time I'll come back forward um, to bring questions from the audience. You can pose those questions at any time throughout the event using the Q&A button um, at the bottom of your screen. Um, otherwise, I hand it over to you now, Professor Otten, and invite you to turn off your, or to, to um, unmute yourself. Uh, and um, thank you both. Thank you, um, Michael. Um, and let me start the conversation uh, with you, Bernie, on um, uh, apocalypticism. Uh, we live, thanks to the pandemic, in a time that is really has really thrown us into chaos, right? It's really upended our normal lives. And those are the times that um, apocalypticism comes into focus, right? So I would like to begin by asking you to lay out a little bit, um, the, the, map out a little bit what apocalypticism over the course of history has stood for and how you principally understand it. And maybe in connection uh, right away to a theme that it's often associated with, namely that of eschatology. So what is apocalypticism commonly understood? What is eschatology? and how should we see their relation? Thanks very much, Wilhelmine. And also thanks to you, Michael, for putting this all together. Um, apocalypticism and, and crisis go together. So I think that's one of the reasons why this is so timely uh, in a way. And uh, apocalypticism, I would say, is the way in which contemporary events are given religious validation by incorporation into a transcendent scheme of meaning. And so while we're always looking at contemporary events, it's in times particularly of crisis, when things are not going as we usually expect, but something unusual comes along, some moment of crisis, that people, in order to find meaning in those times of crisis, try to put them into a transcendent scheme of meaning, transcendent scheme of meaning that was created uh, by in, in Judaism, Jews of the, of the intertestamental period, taken over by Christians, also later taken over by Islam. And so there's a particular stream of monotheistic, sacred apocalypticism over the course of uh, more than 2000 years now. In the last century, so we've also had what could be called secular forms of apocalypticism, but I don't wanna go into that. So what, what, what do I mean when I'm talking about apocalypticism, apocalyptic eschatology? I say it's the belief that God has revealed the imminent end of the ongoing struggle between good and evil in history. And just so with the promise to give final reward to the good and punishment to the evil. And it's different from eschatology in the sense that eschatology is, uh, you know, uh, by definition, any teaching about the last times. Apocalypticism is a particular form of eschatology that emphasizes the imminence of these last events 
according to uh, a certain timetable that's found revealed in the apocalypses or revelations, which were a creation of the Jews of the second temple period in the second century BCE. Imminence then is a key, is a key notion here, but it's also a rather complicated notion because it's not just chronological imminence. There are some apocalyptic texts that do establish what we could call chronological imminence, and they try to make predictions about the end, thus far never fulfilled, of course. So most apocalyptic uh, texts really talk about what I call psychological imminence, which is, as a phrase from one of Martin Marty's students uh, put it in his book title, living in the shadow of the second coming. Living in the shadow of the second coming. I think that's a good way to understand it. You may uh, not be able to prophesy exactly it's going to come this year or that year, but your whole life is organized around living in the shadow of the second coming. So apocalypticism, apocalyptic literature is often, not quite always, but mostly the product of persecuted minorities who view their own time and their own problems as a time of crisis. And that time of crisis, of course, can be done in many ways. It's often a sense of persecution and it was created by Jewish authors in the time of the persecution of the Jews by the Hellenistic emperors in the 160s, 170s uh, uh, BCE. In that sense, uh, most people think of the uh, apocalyptic uh, mentality as a kind of disruptive or revolutionary force seeking to overcome or to combat oppressive powers. And it often is that. But in its long history, it also can adopt a kind of supportive or imperial voice when apocalyptic uh, themes and motifs are used to defend a particular political entity when it's under attack, even when, whether that attack is real or, uh, or perceived. And the apocalyptic mindset sometimes advocates armed resistance, but often it's more a matter of patient waiting for God's coming reward of the just uh, and being willing to suffer under persecution. So in that sense, the um, apocalypticists tend to create what I call apocalyptic scenarios, kind of uh, you know, drama of the end times where they are just uh, standing. And uh, that usually involves seeing the present as a time of some kind of crisis a political crisis or a, uh, you know, a crisis of uh, heavenly uh, destruction, even a natural crisis, which we could say disease and uh, certainly uh, features. But then that crisis, which is coming to an end, will result in a divine intervention, God's judgment in history, and then his vindication of the just and punishment of the wicked. Vindication, which often takes both a heavenly and an earthly kind of uh, kind of dimension. Uh, the thousand year reign of the just on earth as predicted in the book of the apocalypse in uh, Revelation or uh, resurrection from the dead, which is another very important theme in the, in the apocalypses. So it's a, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated motif. It has a long and intricate history but I, and I just want to uh, make one more uh, intervention here. Uh, it has certain kind of tropes or characteristic forms. And I'd just like to mention a few of these. First of all, it's a deterministic view of history. Mm -hmm. God has set everything out. It can't change. 
God has revealed it. What you are called to do, though, it's not personal determinism. It's personal choice. You're called to either support the good side or to, uh, or to join uh, the evil side. It's a teleological view of history. The whole meaning of historical process gains its rationale and its meaning from the coming, from the coming end time. Uh, it's always dualistic or binary, oppositional thinking. It's us versus them. Not so much a metaphysical dualism as you know, there's two powers, uh, uh, you know, an evil power and a good God, but what I call a moral dualism. The moral dualism of those who are convinced that they are on, the, on God's side and they must be absolutely opposed to, uh, to anybody who isn't. And that's one of the great dangers of apocalyptic thought as we see it today in its tremendous influence on fundamentalist movements in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam. That'll give you a sense of the oppositional or binary, uh, binary thinking. And it always involves, and I think this is important, it involves symbolic presentations. It's not laid out in discursive terms. It's laid out in deep symbols that speak to the, the mythic consciousness of the human race, which is, I think, something that you know, gives apocalyptic uh, materials their ongoing life. Because since apocalyptic texts are symbolic, they have what we call surplus of meaning that allows them to be applied to new situations, to new kinds of crises, to new moments in, uh, in, in time. And as I said, it uh, often involves a kind of uh, being on the lookout for the signs of the approaching end. So it's, it's a lookout mentality. But you know, the signs are in the eye of the beholder. Great crises, political crises, often lead to apocalyptic uh, mo movements and apocalyptic thinking. But sometimes they're rather minor moments in history that some particular uh, people, some particular group, will look at and say, aha, this is a sign. This is a very important sign. So indeed, things like wars, things like the decay of empires, things like the rise of new religions, such as Islam, things like the conflict between popes and emperors in the course of the late Middle Ages. These are all major crises that are important parts of the apocalyptic uh, mentality. And so, of course, can be uh, you know, natural crises such as plagues. Um, but sometimes they're rather minor issues. Let me end with one, one example. Um, <clears throat> the spiritual Franciscans of the 13th and 14th century group that held you know, that they were observing the absolute poverty of Francis. And this view uh, of a very strict uh, 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 type of Franciscan life was approved by one Pope in the late 13th century in the 1260s. And then when it was controversial, along came a second Pope in the early 14th century, uh, John XXII, who reversed the decision. And uh, the spirituals had predicted that some Pope was going to attack their view of spiritual poverty. So this was, pop, uh, you know, this was prophecy enforced by its fulfillment. Now, most people wouldn't think, well, one Pope reversing another Pope's view is really all that important, but it was the source of one of the most powerful of the late medieval uh, apocalyptic traditions. So crisis is in the eye of the beholder. And uh, that's one of the, I think, fundamental marks of the apocalyptic um, mentality. Um, one final point, what this means, this kind of script, this apocalyptic scenario, is that apocalyptic, apocalypticism is always a complex mixture, mixture of pessimism, pessimism and optimism. 
pessimism about the present because persecution, mm -hmm. suffering is, is rampant, but optimism about the future. God is coming to reward those who hang on and who are faithful to the promises that he has made. So that's a kind of, for me at least, that's a kind of you know, overview of what I think of as the apocalyptic uh, mentality. Yeah, I think you, you uh, describe and interpret quite well what you could call the apocalyptic genre, which is a, a kind of mixture, as I um, hear you say, between um, the writing of history, trying to give meaning to an events that are unfolding, especially upsetting events, but also a kind of, of prophecy, getting a message out to the world, either to stick with it as the people who are you know, on the good side and are awaiting divine help, or um, to await a final judgment of some kind. Um, and it is really particular to crisis, which I think sort of sets it apart from eschatology, which doesn't necessarily uh, presuppose a crisis. Where, if you oversee this, this genre and, and, and factor in its symbolic uh, tropes, as you mentioned, its mixture of, of prophecy and history, where would you put messianism, which is probably another term that we want to bring up in this context? Yeah, well, apocalypticism often involves messianism. That is the hope for a coming savior to reward the good, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve that. In the same way, apocalypticism often involves millenarianism or chiliasm. That is the hope for a coming better period on earth for the just, often of a thousand years, but not necessarily so. Uh, it also, uh, we can talk about it in relationship to prophecy, as you mentioned, and apocalyptic is a form of prophecy, but prophecy is a wider term <clears throat> because it means any kind of seer who gives a message or takes a message from God and gives it to the people. And the Old Testament prophets were rarely apocalyptic. Yeah. They were mostly messengers from God about what the community was supposed to do at this particular time. So all those terms, uh, eschatology, messianism, chiliasm, prophecy, etc., they're all related, but we can, I think, make distinctions. And apocalyptic eschatology or apocalypticism will frequently involve all of those, but it has its own distinctive character, which I think can be best seen in the terms that there's this, this sense of imminence, that yes, God is coming very soon. We may not know exactly when, but boy, that's what controls your life, is that expectation that you live in the shadow of the second coming. And what you do in an apocalyptic groups is, uh, is basically conditioned by that sense. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, very important for group identity. Remember, that's another point. Yeah. I mean, but apocalyptic groups are usually minorities, not necessarily so. Mm -hmm. But the apocalyptic expectation <clears throat> that God is going to reward them, punish their opponents, enforces the group identity that often is being strained and stretched mm -hmm. by crisis and persecution. Yeah. If, if it is so dualistic, would you say that um, Gnostics would be, have been over time more interested in apocalypticism or is that not necessarily the case? Well, I think there are um, some Gnostic groups that seem to have been apocalyptic, but I would say the characteristic of Gnostic uh, beliefs is a metaphysical dualism. 
-hmm. the belief in two absolute powers. The apocalypticists are moral dualists. Mm -hmm. That is, God is in control of history. The devil is running around now and punishing and persecuting and the evil spirits, et cetera, but they're gonna be defeated. Yes. So that uh, there's no metaphysical or ontological dualism. There's a strong sense of moral dualism, us Mm -hmm. against them, choose our side and reject the other side. And I think that's the difference between Gnosticism and apocalypticism. The Gnostics use the apocalyptic form of text. I mean, because apocalypse is a genre, a particular genre, but the apocalyptic history of the apocalyptic imagination as it developed over more than 2000 years, it used many different genres, many different forms of writing, treatises, poetry, sermons, scriptural commentaries, Mm -hmm. uh, novels, Think of the current, the, the Left Behind series, which some of uh, the audience may have read. I mean, it's supposedly sold over 60 million copies. Yeah. And it's a form of fundamentalist apocalypticism put in very bad novelistic yeah. <laughs> examples. Yeah. If we take a look at, at um, uh, history and, and particularly the history of Christianity, given that um, the history of Christianity in its origins is you know, after Christ ascended to heaven, awaiting his return, it is kind of um, inevitable, you would say, that early Christians were susceptible to apocalyptic messages, right? Or apocalyptic writing. Yep. Um, <clears throat> is, is that, and, and you can see that people are awaiting the end. So there is an, an element to apocalypticism which I think is also a kind of an anticipation of crisis. It's not necessarily only crisis. It's sort of waiting for calling on a crisis. You're, you're, looking, you want to... you're looking for crisis. Exactly, exactly. You're waiting yes. for crisis, exactly. Yeah. Expect, expectation. You're waiting for the signs. You yes. know God is going to send the signs. Yes. And so you're on the queue. What, what, is that a sign from God or is that just some other kind of event? Yes. And of course, apocalypticism was crucial to the early history of Christianity. Uh, 50 years ago, Ernst Kasemann, famous New Testament uh, scholar made the statement, you know, uh, a famous statement that apocalypticism was the mother of all theology, all yeah. Christian theology. Yeah. And there's a good deal of truth to that. Debate still goes on. Was Jesus an apocalyptic prophet? Yes, exactly. And, yes. and you know, it swings back and forth, but I tend to think that there were many elements in what we can find out about Jesus Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of apocalyptic prophecy. And yeah. certainly the early scripture, scriptural texts in the uh, synoptic gospels, for example, mm-hmm. contain the famous little apocalypse where Jesus gives the famous message about the coming signs of the end time. Paul himself has to be seen as a partly an apocalyptic preacher as well, as you can yes. see from many of his uh, epistles, particularly First uh, Thessalonians and various others. So apocalypticism is crucial to the origins of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, um, you know, I want to come back to this point of moral dualism. And you say some apocalyptics are um, uh, cosmic, but you feel the moral dualism and the moral force of it is more important. Nevertheless, you mentioned Paul. There is a sense in Paul of creation being in agony and there being the birth pangs of a new creation. So can't you see cosmology and, and in relation to that, uh, everybody has the pandemic on his or her mind, probably. Can't you see cosmology and nature also as, as really endemic to apocalypticism? 
Well, I think that's very true. Uh, apocalypse as a form, which is a mediated revelation, mediated by some angelic figure, doesn't come direct, mediated revelation. The early Jewish apocalypses contain two forms. One of them deals with history and historical process primarily. The other one deals with cosmology, with cosmic secrets. The seer is taken on a heavenly journey and secrets about the cosmos are revealed to that seer. Um, and that cosmic dimension to apocalyptic expectations about history continues on in many, not all, but many apocalyptic texts. So there's both a horizontal dimension dealing with history and a vertical dimension dealing with heaven and, and cosmology in, in general. Yeah. So the, the cosmological aspect is implicit even when the texts themselves may be more, if we will, sequential and historical and, uh, and uh, horizontal. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, there comes a time then that Christianity becomes settled on earth, say in the fourth century with, um, say, Constantine. Um, then you have the fall of Rome, right? In mm -hmm. 410, definitely, uh, or the sack of Rome first, soon after the fall of Rome, um, which was definitely a world crisis uh, at the time. Um, and interestingly, um, Augustine then, with the city of God, writes what you can probably call an anti-apocalyptic text. I, well, right? I agree, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so how would you position him in this and his, his take on the matter in, in this debate on apocalypse? Was it meant to be anti-apocalyptic? Was it a side effect that he had another message and, and this had to be part of it? Or where do you put him? Oh, I think he's definitely anti-apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. And we can see that right in the city of God itself. Uh, if you look particularly in book 18 and various other kinds of places, but from books 18 and through book 20 and the like, Augustine is resolutely opposed to those who want to see signs, history full of signs about the coming of the end. Yeah. He mentions, for example, uh, Bishop Ezekius, who was a bishop in Salona in present day, uh, where would it be? I think probably in Croatia or Serbia. <clears throat> And this bishop in 418 wrote Augustine a long letter and said, you know, look, things are bad in the Roman Empire. There's all sorts of stuff going on. These are signs of the end. Tell me how to interpret these. Augustine writes back and he says, you know, basically he says, grow up. Yeah. But out of this mentality. And, you know, only God knows. Augustine's favorite text about this is the Acts of the Apostles 1-7. Jesus tells the apostles, you don't know the day or the hour. Yes. God alone knows the day mm -hmm. or the hour. Mm -hmm. So Augustine is writing on, he's attacking two opponents. One are the imperial theologians who say that, you know, Rome is the new kingdom of God on earth. Uh, and then, you know, mm -hmm. the kingdom of the, the Christian God fails because Rome is sacked in 410. And Augustine says, no, don't identify the destinies of the Roman Empire and Christianity. On the other side of the apocalypticists who look at the crises that are going on with barbarian invasions and like, and say, oh, these are the signs predicted in, uh, in the scriptures. And Augustine says to them, no, no, no. And then he, he writes in great detail to show them why their interpretations of scriptural texts, book of Apocalypse, the book of Daniel, why they're mistaken in those interpretations. So it's one of the great anti-apocalyptic texts, really, in the history of Christianity. Yeah. And, and, and there are two aspects of Augustine that I, I just want to dwell on a little bit. One is um, that he does have a periodization of history, right, in, in six millennia. 
but he doesn't give a, a seventh millennium, right? He, he, he himself sort of abstains from, from, from calling out the end, from being able to mark the end. Oh yeah, he said nobody, nobody knows. Yes, nobody exactly. Knows. Yes. But he, he does buy into the periodizations of history are, are important. Uh, and this is another one of the tropes or, or characteristic aspects of apocalyptic texts. That is, they try to divide history into various periods. Yes. And to give you a sense of the universality of history by that periodic division. The most important of these in Christianity was what's called the World Week, hmm. which is, is based on the Hexaemeron. Yes. And, and yeah. right in back to the second century texts, such as the Epistle of Barnabas and various others, you mm -hmm. find this World Week scheme that just as God created the world in six days, so too he had decreed that the world was going to last 6,000 years. Mm -hmm. And then many believe that, of course, the seventh thousand year, the seventh day, the day of rest, would be the predicted millennium of Apocalypse 20. And um, most people, if you calculate from the Old Testament, and Christians were doing this from the third century on, say, well, you know, Jesus came in the middle of the sixth age. So it gives you 500 years, roughly. Mm -hmm. Well, as you get closer to the 500 years, people start redating that. Jerome redates it. Numerous other people redate it. Mm -hmm. Augustine uses that sixth age model in his early writing, mm -hmm. and he refers to it only once at the end of the De Civitate Dei. It doesn't serve any structural feature in the work itself, because I think Augustine in the City of God says, true history is not the external history of the rise and fall of kingdoms. That's peripheral. Mm -hmm. It's the history of the two cities. Yeah. It's the history of the city of God and those who belong to it by their good actions mm -hmm. and the city of evil, the city of the devil, who by their evil actions make themselves part of that body. So for him, history has become internalized. Yeah. Don't look outside at, at events. They're not so important. You look inside at where you are. Yes. Are you a member of the city of God or are you a member of the other side? Yeah. I, I want to come back to another point of Augustine later, this idea of the translation of, of, of empires, uh, which is also a theme in, in Augustine. Um, but back to the, the periodization, Augustine was or seems to have been very effective in kind of suppressing um, the apocalyptic um, impulses, say, uh, that, were, that were present in, in uh, ancient civilization. And so there wasn't much apocalyptic thought, say, in the early Middle Ages. But well, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, no, no, well, I, I was going to get to the year 1000, which has been, you know, I've, I've written a little bit uh, on the year 1000, and I did so when we were approaching the year 2000. <laughs> at that point, everybody had an interest in the year 1000. But, but uh, one theory is that Augustine was really successful in suppressing uh, um, this kind of apocalyptic impulse, but that around the year 1000, some stirring um, was, was coming, rising to the surface. So you have this book of the, the birth of the Antichrist by Oxo uh, around the year 1000. You have another history of Rodolphus Glaber that yep. is calling on the, the one year, 1000 anniversary of the incarnation, also a kind of an apocalyptic text. Mm -hmm. So there is that story. But you don't think Augustine was as effective? 
I don't. I mean, Augustine was certainly effective among the large groups of the uh, clerical intelligentsia mm -hmm. in the course of the early medi medieval period as anti-apocalypticism, but was also some, many, many times often misunderstood mm -hmm. and allowed for other, other apocalyptic themes to creep in, certainly on popular levels, but also among certain groups of the clergy as well. So there's a good deal of uh, apocalypticism in the early medieval period. There's certainly apocalyptic expectations around the year 1000, but the idea that this somehow is a vast new outpouring of apocalypticism, I think is incorrect. Yes. And most students, not all, <clears throat> but most students of apocalyptic traditions today would really say the same. That is the so-called fears of the year 1000 were only another example or, <clears throat> or one example of an ongoing apocalyptic mentality Mm -hmm. that we can see in the early Middle Ages and on through a later period here. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's one historian who argues that there was more apocalyptic interest, say, between 950 and 1050 than, say, either before 950 or after 1050. So if that, were if that could be really counted, you could say there was generally more interest. But it was not acute. I, I agree with that. But a phenomenon that I was very interested in with Rodolphus Glaber, who wrote about the thousand year anniversary of, of the incarnation, that was what he yeah. marked in the year 1000, is that of course he was also having various visions of what would happen in the end times. But when they, they didn't bear out, he performed this, this, this trick, which um, Stephen J. Gould, who later wrote around uh, about year 2000, the resetting of the clock. And yeah. he moved it from the anniversary of the incarnation to the anniversary of the resurrection as the new sort of inflection point, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's, so that's been done. That's been done throughout the course of history, history uh, of apocalyptic traditions. Move the goalposts. Exactly. When exactly. they run the yes. goal, doesn't yeah. doesn't quite yeah. get there, or you're past the time. Yeah. Yes. So, and what do you attribute that to? Because you can say it's in a way uh, 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 an implosion of your apocalyptic vision if it doesn't work out. But that's not how the apocalyptic mind works, because you would rarely admit to defeat, right? So. Right inside the symbolism that you've that you've acquired you would then indeed come up with different symbols or a different reading of the symbol yeah no different reading and i think this is the difference between intelligent apocalyptic authors and the stupid ones <laughs> because really it's only the stupid ones who said exact dates there was a friend of martin yes. luther's and luther was deeply apocalyptic yes a friend of martin luther's a preacher who got up and announced the exact date i think it was in october 4 of like 1530 yes. or something like that, I forget the exact date. Big mistake, yes. because of course the world went on after that uh, date. And in American history, of course, it was the famous history of the Millerites yeah. in the 1830s, mm -hmm. where uh, you know they announced a date, it didn't come, and then they announced another date shortly thereafter, and announced shortly after, and this went on for a couple of years, and then finally people got sick of William Miller and said, no, no, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a false prophet, you're an idiot. Yes. The intelligent apocalyptic authors Mm -hmm. give you a sense we're living in the end. They give you certain signs. They mm -hmm. give you maybe a very vague or rough calendar, but they don't tie themselves down. And hence, they can always readapt and readjust the mm -hmm. calendar yeah. as, as, events, as events go on. Yeah, so this mysterious aspect to um, apocalypticism, I think, um, uh, allows the the apocalyptic writers to always be able to move the goalpost. And, exactly. Uh, and, 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 uh, 
which I think was first published in around 1970 or so, which set a precise date somewhere in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And of course it went on. So in the second edition, he changed the date. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote several of the books in the early 2000s in which new dates were announced. So it was a great mistake, uh, although he made, I don't know, they say he sold Mm -hmm. 30 30 million copies Mm -hmm. of of late great planet earth in its various editions. But he was too, you know, he was too exact. and uh, then he finally, you know, he, he finally gave up the earlier edition, although Lake Great Planet Earth probably still sells, and wrote, wrote new books with new dates. Yes, yeah. But I also want to touch briefly on this idea of a, a translation of empires, because yeah. that is associated with a prophecy in Daniel 2, right? When yeah. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a statue that Daniel interprets for him whose head is made of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay, right? And one way in which um, Augustine interprets the the sort of um, succession of civilizations is to basically say to the Romans, well, you know, we've had a string of civilizations, there will be others, and so Christians should never be too attached to any civilization. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you see that sort of translation of empire's motif play into the history of apocalypticism? Oh, it's extremely important, uh, especially the identification of the last world empire as the Roman empire. Yeah. Uh, Because what that means, of course, uh, as many apocalyptic authors said, you know, Rome will last down to the end and it will be the collapse of Rome which will mark the coming of, uh, of the Antichrist. Uh, and what this also allows is that meaning has to be found for the Roman Empire within what I call the apocalyptic scenario, yeah. that, that sketch of what's coming. And this is done by the creation of new apocalyptic figures, quasi-Messiah figures, the birth of what's called the last emperor legend, yes. particularly when Rome is in trouble. <laughs> when the Roman empire is collapsing, or when Rome is attacked by the new power of Islam, apocalyptic authors create this figure of a quasi-messiah, a coming last Roman empire emperor, who will be God's agent on earth, who will put the empire together again, will defeat all the enemies of the empire, particularly Islam, and then reign in Jerusalem until he hands over his crown to God at the end time. Now, now there's no place in the scriptural apocalypticism for a last world emperor. Mm-hmm. But the last world emperor traditions from their creation in the seventh century and on have been an important part of Christian apocalypticism down to the present time. Yeah. There are still conservative, very right-wing Catholics in places like France and others who are looking for a last world emperor mm. who will be descendant of the French kings, believe it or not. <laughs> I've read some of their literature. So it's still around. Yes. Well, but I, I as I said, I'm, I wrote something on around the year, about the year 1000. 
as the year 2000 approached. And then soon after we had 9-11 yeah. and certainly in Europe, I was in Europe at the time, that gave rise to all sorts of discussions about whether this was some kind of apocalyptic moment, right? Yeah. And, and so the succession of empires came up too. Would this have meant the, would this mean the end of the American regime uh, yeah. in the 20th century? So I think that, that sort of speculation is, is still with us. Right. I think we live in one of the most apocalyptic times in the course of the last mm -hmm. 2000 years. Apocalyptic literature, both the scriptural literature and then also what we call the secular apocalyptic literature and other things from yeah. the tradition to say, they have great power today, particularly in popular culture, yeah. if not necessarily in theological culture. But look around you and see in novels, in plays, in videos, in movies, in all sorts of ephemeral kind of productions, the way in which people are living in the shadow of the second of, of a second coming, some kind of crisis. And if you're a fundamentalist, of course, you believe in a totally literal reading of the apocalyptic symbols from the scriptures. And you know that it's right around the corner that God is, Jesus is gonna come down, destroy all the enemies of Christianity, primarily Islam, and after the rapture, reward the good with a messianic kingdom on earth. That's the premise behind things like the Left Behind series yeah. and the, the immense popularity of these. So I think it, it, the internet has done more to disseminate apocalypticism and apocalyptic motifs than any other media, <laughs> including the uh, invention of printing you know, yeah. in, in the 15th century. And the crises of our time, crisis of 9-11, the crisis of the last uh, recession, now the crisis of the pandemic uh, of, of coronavirus and the, the, the coming depression probably. These yeah. are seen as signs of the time and they also emphasize for yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> mediated. Um, Sorry, <laughs> about <that. laughs> Sorry about that, your media is coming. No, no, no. But I think actually you mentioned that it's had popular appeal, but I think even secular intellectuals are, are feeding off of this because you may have read that Giorgio Agamben, also interested in messianism, uh, basically wrote on the pandemic that it was another flu and this was a, a way for, for the Italian state to declare the state of exception and basically you know, take over power. So the, the, the kind of um, parano paranoid scenario, I would almost say, even hit secular intellectuals. In oh, I, yeah, I think secular, secular apocalypticism is very strong today. And it's very effective, particularly with regard to climate uh, crisis. Yes. I, believe, I believe we are in a climate crisis, but yes. if you look at the way in which the climate crisis is understood as the, you know, the existential threat, but still with the possibility of reversing this, et cetera, many, uh, much of the language, much of the symbols, much of the literary tropes, very similar to the way apocalyptic texts argue. Yes. So secular apocalypticism now is becoming almost as strong as the traditions of sacred apocalypticism. Yeah, yeah. And since you've studied it almost for 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 a lot a lifetime, um, has that study made you more or less apocalyptically inclined? <laughs> <laughs> or where do you see yourself? Is it a matter of temperament, in other words, or is it really uh, your position in life that makes you? Uh, apocalyptic. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll give two answers to that. For, the first is um, people are always looking for meaning in history. Yeah. Particularly in times of crisis and confusion. 
And this is why apocalypticism is always going to be with us in various ways, whether it be religious or it be secular forms. It gives meaning to people in, in times of, uh, of crisis and confusion, and sometimes even of despair. But the other side of that is it can be extremely dangerous. And it has been a very dangerous uh, tradition in the course of the history of Western uh, monotheistic religions, because it, it pits its binary and it's oppositional. It pits us against them Mm-hmm. And it gives us, us, the people that believe like us, you know, every motivation to uh, be so opposed that we don't even think there's salvation possible for people on the other side. So apocalypticism, I think, as I put it in my Antichrist book, <clears throat> needs to be taken symbolically and not literally. Yeah. When apocalypticism is read literally, as it is with most fundamentalist groups, it's a very, very dangerous factor in religious history and in, and in popular culture as well. I think within the uh, this apocalyptic imagination, as my friend John Collins calls it, uh, or within the apocalyptic symbolism, there's a tremendous amount of power about human nature and about the truth of the decisions between good and evil that people are going to have to make. So that I think that if we don't, if we can take it symbolically try to understand why it's so powerful. There mm-hmm. are things in the apocalyptic traditions that are very, very important, I think, for, uh, for our understanding today. If we try to interpret it literally, as so many millions of people to do, I think it's extremely dangerous. Yeah. But you know, we study dangerous things as well as helpful things as, yeah. as, as academics, yeah. Yeah. without necessarily having to share the literal, the literal interpretation. Yeah. But you're never going to see uh, you, you can't close your eyes to the apocalyptic traditions because they're still so much with us and so powerful. You need to try to understand them. Yes. Yeah, so they will not go away. But I think you're quite right that if you oversee the spectrum, some way of reading that tradition can be as a co- kind of consolation, you know, that there have been other crises before. Oh, yeah. uh, but but it can also be a call to arms and 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 increasing panic and paranoia. And, and, and sometimes in good causes. Uh, to take the fight against apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. But much of that, it, there's a whole group of uh, commentators on the apocalypse mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in, the, uh, in the fight against uh, apartheid that use the symbols of the book of Revelation to rally their people in the cause of justice, to yeah. overthrow an, un, an unjust system. Yeah. So you might say that was a good example of, of a fundamentally helpful Yes. Uh, use of apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, so it's as against the more destructive ones. Yes, yeah, so the call to arms is not necessarily a bad thing in that sense. No, not not yeah. in, in situations yeah. of tremendous oppression and dis, and dishonesty. Yeah. But back to a more um, sort of theological point, what do you see uh, if any is the relationship between apocalypticism and theodicy? Because it's so um, involved in in questions about good and evil. Uh, where how how does that work? Well, I think for the for the true believer, apocalypticist, it is a form of theodicy. Yeah, that is when they are suffering in various situations, it gives them the hope that God is just. Yeah, and God will come to the well that there is a God, mm-hmm. and that God is just, and that God will come to uh, to reward them. And sometimes that can be a good thing. Yeah, it can be a very dangerous thing when it also gives you a fourth kind of uh, conclusion is that. Well, now let's fight on God's side against mm-hmm. our enemies because we know God's on our side. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, as, as Bob Dylan once sang, "God's on our side." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Michael Le Chevalier is signaling us that he wants to move to uh, an audience discussion. So there you are, Michael. Go ahead and. Great. Well, thank you thus far for a very rich conversation. Uh, and we've already had quite a few questions that are coming in from the audience. And for those who still have questions, you can use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Um, a first question that comes from uh, a fellow medievalist, uh, John Wickstrom, um, asked, is apocalypticism unique to Western culture? If there are examples from other cultures, could you mention a few differences between Western and other cultural elements of this phenomenon? Um, back in the year 2000, or leading up to the year 2000, uh, with my friend John Collins and Stephen Stein, Americanist, uh, we did a three-volume encyclopedia of apocalypticism. And as we planned that, one of the issues was, were we going to do apocalyptic-like traditions outside of the three monotheistic faiths? And we decided not to do that, because I think there's a continuity of monotheistic apocalypticism in... Judaism, Christianity, Islam, that's different from other expectations and fears about historical process that you find in other religious traditions. So I would say there are things, I call them apocalyptic-like in other kinds of religious traditions, but I don't think that they have the same characteristic, uh, same characteristics, same coherence that the three mutually influential forms of apocalypticism in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have. So that's, a, excuse my short answer to that. Yeah. Right. And Professor Otten, feel free to chime in at any point as well sure. to any yeah. of these questions from the audience. Another question from uh, Ramon Posada. Um, it has, and this is somewhat related. Um, it has been mentioned that similarities exist between religious and secular apocalyptic thinking. Um, given this, could we argue that apocalyptic thinking, especially regarding um, its anthropological origin has very little to do with genuine revelation, that is to say scripture, and more an expression of a human need for meaning in a time of crisis, that is a defense mechanism. Is there something more uh, undergirded sort of bearing into the, the sort of anthropology of who we are as people? Yeah. You begin well, to get I, at this in your comments. Yeah, I, I think it's both. But it, its historical origin is in monotheistic religious faith in Judaism, and then in Christianity, and then, and then in Islam. But it answers to a universal human need, which is the need to find meaning in history, particularly in what I call the welter or the chaos of history. And especially when, you know, things come unmoored and uh, crises and um, persecutions and all sorts of calamities. Uh, people are looking for meaning in history. I think that's a fundamental anthropological given and I think uh, apocalypticism is one way of dealing with that, a very distinctive way within the monotheistic religions. But what we've seen, as I was pointing out, is that now those modes of thinking have often transitioned to the secular mo modality, uh, and uh, they're not tied to the revealed sense of apocalypticism anymore. But the way in which they answer the human need, the way in which they argue, the way in which they fear and hope very, very similar to what we find in the Christian and Jewish and, and Islamic texts. Mm -hmm. And maybe I, I would like to add to that, that, you know, to the extent that 
um, you know, people have, have uh, sort of um, uh, dismantled the kind of modernity uh, modernization hypothesis in the sense that modernity would mean the end of religion. Uh, I think religious discourse has become very pervasive in many ways. And so in infiltrated in a way, the secular sphere, which, which speaks uh, very often the same language. So that, that distinction, religious or secular, on the point of apocalyptic is not a hard and fast one. It's just difficult to draw. And yeah, no, I, I, I agree very, very much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so then another question that sort of ties into this um, uh, question about modernity. Um, uh, it was a two-part question. The first was already responded, but it, it seems to play into the second. In our present crisis, there's a good deal of anti-apocalyptic or counter-apocalyptic -apoc messaging. Was this also the case? in times of crisis before the modern era. And you already highlighted Augustine as one example. Yep. Yeah. But then would you agree today that the major alternative worldview to apocalypticism is biological and medical science? Is it possible for scientifically educated people to be sensitive to apocalypticism? Does um, scientific thinking serve as a vaccine or antidote to <laughs> apocalyptic imaginations. Well, we're looking for a vaccine, right? I mean, yeah. so that uh, yeah. I think that a lot depends um, on the kind of mentality of the scientist. If the, if the scientist is open to symbolic meaning, as well as what we might call hard and fast scientific meaning, they can find something in apocalypticism. I don't want them to look for and find literal apocalypticism. And I think many scientists, but not all would be against that. Mm -hmm. But if a scientist is open to wider frameworks of meaning, a symbolic meaning, they can find in apocalyptic traditions things that are still worth, that, that are worth, uh, if you will, meditating on and trying to appropriate in some, in some particular way. Mm -hmm. But I don't think no matter how scientific our society is, apocalypticism is going to go away. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think we're seeing um, in the last decade or so a real crisis of science in the sense that scientists maybe um, had taken over the, the, the position of, of clerics in, in the past, say, uh, being, being the harbingers of truth, but that's no longer the case. So science has to be read. Science in itself is, is making predictions that are not hard and fast. So in that sense, I think there is a, a crisis of science. But I, I did mention earlier, I do sort of think that there's a kind of apocalyptic temperament, and I, I'm not sure I have it saved. You're not on the lookout for signs. Not really. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, do, you do want to give meaning, but yep. you also do want to weigh the evidence. And I do not think it would be a good thing for us if we gave that up, say, in favor of apocalyptic meaning. Um, right, you know, and you mentioned before, Michael, you know, that um, well, or the question was, you know, had that has that tension between uh, anti-apocalypticism and pro-apocalypticism. Yeah. It's always been in the history of Christian thought. Augustine yeah. was very anti-apocalyptic. If we take the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas was very much anti-apocalyptic yeah. and explicitly condemned the uh, thought of Joachim of Fiore, mm -hmm. the great apocalyptic thinker of the end of the 12th century. But Thomas's great contemporary, Bonaventure, the Franciscan, mm -hmm. was open to apocalyptic thinking, yes. particularly uh, over the issues within the Franciscan order, and wrote one of the major apocalyptic texts of the late Middle Ages, his commentary on the Hexa Amaron. Uh, so 
you know, you, they've always been pro-apocalyptic and anti-apocalyptic thinkers, I think, throughout the history of Christianity. And uh, important ones, you know, not just the apocalyptic thinker is not just necessarily some kind of raving popular preacher, as mm -hmm. certain people yeah. thought, some revolutionary. This is what Norman Cohn thought in his book, you know, um, but uh, they often are, are intellectual thinkers of a very high caliber, not necessarily of the, what I call the literal apocalyptic mentality, but of a kind of openness to apocalyptic symbolism and the apocalyptic imagination. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so a question from a, a student uh, or soon to be graduating student, Matthew Vanderpool um, asks, how should we think about the relationship between broad popular senses of crisis, such as the one we're currently in right now, COVID-19, and the apocalyptic outlook of specific religious communities, um, such as the evangelicals who read Left Behind, that are always already looking out for crisis. Well, I, I would say, let's see how that one plays out. Because yeah. I'd be very interested to see if the crisis of you know, COVID-19 and then the economic collapse, uh, what effect it was going to have on American fundamentalism. Uh, thus far, the signs that American fundamentalists have concentrated on have been political signs, yeah. uh, particularly with regard to the foundation of, of Israel. I mean, this was the great success story because in the 19th century, the dispensationalists, uh, John Darby and his fellows, had predicted history wouldn't end until the Jews were returned to the Holy Land. And that seemed impossible. And then lo and behold, you have the First World War, you have the Balfour Declaration in 1918, you have the foundation of Israel in 1948. Suddenly, lots of people said, gee, the dispensationalists were right. Mm -hmm. And of course now, support of Israel is, is the foundation for uh, fundament American fundamentalism. Uh, so will the fundamentalists turn to what I call <clears throat> signs of cosmic signs or climate signs or other things at and incorporate them into what's been largely a political form of apocalyptic uh, yeah. understanding. I don't know. Yeah, but it's interesting that the Marty Center has collaborated least recently with the National Opinion Research Center and asked them various questions about the pandemic yep. and their religious views. And it was interesting that 43% um, of the about thousand uh, people interviewed blame the current situation on foreign governments 37% blame it on the US government, but only 11% blames it on human sinfulness. Mm -hmm. So it's it's surprisingly unreligious in a way. It's also interesting that white evangelical Christians are more likely than other Americans to feel that God will protect them from being infected. So uh, yeah. there's a kind of an anti-apocalyptic uh, a view that God will protect you, um, or actually it is apocalyptic, but yeah, you, you are made to feel invincible in a way. Uh, us versus yeah. them. Yes, exactly. It is the us versus them. So also we're healthier in a way or more invincible because of divine protect protection from getting the disease. Yeah. Um, so a question from another student, um, Paride Stortini asks, what do you think is the kind of pedagogical contribution that a historian of religion or Christianity can give to the debate on contemporary apocalyptic readings of the pandemic emergency? Do you think a historical approach is healthy in emptying fundamentalist uses of apocalypticism? 
I would say it is or it can be helpful because a study of the history will show you exactly how these crises, political and, and uh, cosmic and historical, have come and gone yeah. throughout the course of history and how they've been interpreted in one way in ways that if they are literally uh, conditioned are almost have always been wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although yeah. with success from time to time, as I say, mm-hmm. the, the, the foundation of Israel fulfilled one part of the dispensationalist agenda for the future. So people right. say, oh, that part is, is finished. That part's true. So that must, it must be true for the rest of the parts yeah. as well. No, I think his history can be really um, important pedagogically in a sense that when you're in the vortex of a crisis, it's very hard to look beyond and to look at this this literature and to see how it has indeed come and gone can give you this sort of assurance that this might also pass, right? So I think it it really can have counterintuitively a sort of sobering effect actually to read apocalyptic literature. Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things that attracted me to the study of apocalypticism, and this goes back more than 50 years, is that I became more and more convinced that it's a perennial part of human history, particularly Western history. And we need to try to understand its past if we're going to understand its power in the present time. And it's not, as I said often here, it's not going to go away. But we have to try to understand what it can do both the good it has occasionally done mm-hmm. and the much bad that it has done often in its application. And that's what historians are supposed to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think, for instance, of the Cold War mythology, which has completely disappeared, right? And it's not mm-hmm. too long ago. So it is really with us all the time. Uh, which is very apocalyptic. Again, yeah. it's a perfect example of the us versus them, the binary thinking. Yeah. Um, so a, a question that'll take us um, back away from the present moment for a second. We have a question from Nathaniel um, Levtow. In what ways did medieval apocalypticism differ from ancient apocalypticism? And do we have source or evidence for plague-inspired apocalypticism in the past? Um, the plagues played a somewhat minor role, but they did have a role. If you take the great, the Black Death, the great plague of the middle of the 14th century, many apocalyptic texts reflect on, on the plague at, as one of the signs. Yeah. But it's often much more important the political signs of the time. That is, the plague is less important than, than, some, of the, uh, than some of the political signs. Mm-hmm. I think the way in which, in general, medieval apocalypticism differs from the earlier version is that much more developed it has a much richer scenario because it's had to add in all sorts of things, the Roman Empire, the papacy, mm-hmm. uh, certain other kinds of conflicts, particularly mm-hmm. in religious orders. It's had to add them into the scenario mm-hmm. to give them transcendent meaning. So it's a much more complicated scenario that, or variety of scenarios is a better way to put it, than, than you find in the, uh, the uh, Jewish and Christian early apocalypses. Yeah, I, I would say, I, I also don't think the Black Plague gave rise to much uh, apocalyptic writing. Unfortunately, it did give rise, say, to Jewish persecution, right? Yes. So there are these effects of the plague um, that that throw us into a historical apocalyptic scenario of some kind. No, right? I, that's true. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. So a question from Brenda Pope. 
you mentioned that apocalyptic thinking tends to be associated with monistic teachings or monotheistic teachings. Monotheistic. Can you speak to why that is so? Is apocalyptic mm -hmm. thinking totally absent from polytheistic societies? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think there are apocalyptic-like uh, manifestations in polytheistic religions and other religions. Where I think monotheistic apocalypticism has a special characteristic is the one God is the one master of history. Yeah. And, there may, and there may be other powers around, evil powers, but it's only God who decides and he's the one God. It's what makes true apocalypticism perhaps more difficult in, in polytheistic faiths. Not that it's totally absent. Now, I was thinking the same thing when you mentioned that before. In polytheistic um, uh, religions, you have ways to deflect um, because there are so many opportunities to say, explain evil. That is really more difficult in monotheistic religions. So uh, God is the one source uh, who is mediated, but it's the one source. Yeah, and this is why apocalypticism is not metaphysically or ontologically dualistic because God is the one guy in control, even though there are powers of evil. So it is morally or ethically dualistic, of course, us versus them. Mm -hmm. But it's not based upon a, a, a strict ontological dualism. Can't be. Um, and an anonymous person asked the question, um, knowing that apocalyptic thinking is a given for our anthropology, particularly the American tradition of end times writing and thought, is there a connection between these traditions and conspiracy thinking, such as the QAnon phenomenon, which sees President Trump as a savior? America has, long, has a long tradition of religious thinking that sees the country itself as a Christian readout against forces of evil. Much of the language of extremist political thought today seems to echo this binary expression. So a question that takes us once more into the secular, but with a, a tie I, I, to I, I would agree. Yeah. I, I think QAnon is a kind of secular form of apocalyptic thinking. And I think that there are many other aspects of modern culture. There are the, the most recent book, <laughs> you can see it just came out about a month ago, Cambridge Companion to Apocalyptic Literature. Okay. Uh, edited by a friend of mine. Uh, the last two essays there are quite good on the uh, current apocalyptic, uh, one is on the use of apocalypticism in American fundamentalism in general. The last one is the new apocalyptic era mm -hmm. in which we are uh, now currently living. And QAnon is one of the examples used in that, mm -hmm. uh, in that book for uh, sec secular forms of apocalypticism. So I, I make, this is not my book. I'm not even, I don't even have an essay in it. I'm, just, I'm, I'm taking some of the other book. If, if you want to have a Cambridge Companion to Apocalyptic Literature. And by the way, the whole genre now in the last, uh, since the three volumes that uh, John Collins and Steve Stein and I did in 2000, there's a whole genre now of companions and introductions to apocalyptic literature. There are a dozen of them out there. Right. Um, since we're on that topic, uh, where would you direct people to try and learn? You, you just highlighted one book. What, where, where are other good starting places to engage with apocalyptic thinking, the apocalyptic imagination? Uh, <clears throat> From a scholarly perspective. We've already heard about the Left Behind series. <laughs> uh, this is uh, 2014. Mm -hmm. John Collins, a great expert on a, a biblical apocalypticism, the Oxford Handbook of Apocalyptic Literature, 
Mm -hmm. Another very good starting point. And it, it deals with the whole history of apocalypticism, not just with biblical apocalypticism. And uh, I think there's still some relevance to the three volumes that I mentioned that uh, we did in uh, the year 2000, John Collins and Steve Stein and I. I mean, again, some of it is outdated because it's 20 years ago. So th there's quite a bit to do. If you're interested in uh, medieval traditions, particularly, I, I did a book on that called Visions of the End, uh, which is still in print uh, in, in a second edition. And there's a lot of stuff on biblical apocalypticism. So um, one piles of stuff. One final question for me, and then Professor An, I will leave it to you if you have another final question um, to help close mm -hmm. us out of, out of your reflections. But uh, tied to this QAnon phenomenon, um, and I'm having a hard time finding the question within here, but effectively um, with secular versions of, of the apocalyptic, um, what is being revealed? If, if apocalypticism mm -hmm. has as its sort of under, you know, undertone meaning, what is you know, the, this revealing? What is being revealed within, a, within secular apocalyptic forms? Well, I think one of the things that's being revealed is, uh, is certain projections about the future of humanity in an age of climate change. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is not coming down as a, as a message from heaven. It's coming down as a message from science, but projecting into the future that we really cannot know. I mean, I'm a firm believer that things are going to change, but the logic here is a projection, a prophecy based on certain signs mm -hmm. uh, and fulfilling many of the characteristics of the way in which apocalyptic thinkers work. So I think there are things even in the secular apocalyptic world that are being revealed, but they're being revealed not on the basis God told me so, but on other bases, whether they be scientific extrapolations or whether be certain guesses about social phenomena. Mm -hmm. And, and I think actually secular apocalypticism has been uh, far less studied, right? So I think it would be interesting to really study that also and then see how it lines up with, with religious apocalypticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Professor An, do you have any other closing remarks or closing questions? Well, I would um, maybe ask Professor McGinn what his take is on the current crisis. Does he read it himself in any apocalyptic terms or is it something that he puts in a different category say from apocalypticism altogether uh, i'm not a searcher for signs either yeah. <laughs> actually um so that i think uh, I, I i don't see the current crisis as apocalyptic sign of the uh, of the end in any sense but i can see where a lot of people will be reading it that way mm -hmm. and i'd like to understand why they would read it that way and how, if they read it that way, it will affect in which, how, what effect it will have on the long story of apocalyptic traditions. Yes, great. Well, while we're not reading for signs, there were certainly many great plugs within today's uh, talk today for some of Lumen Christie's upcoming events. So if we're all still lucky to be here on Thursday, uh, we have a lecture by Kevin Hughes on Bonaventure. Um, next week, we actually welcome back Professor McGinn um, to explore Meister Eckhart. Um, Professor McGinn is one of the leading experts in, in Meister Eckhart, so we'll be excited to have him lecturing next week, Thursday at 7 p.m. And then we already got a foretaste as well for Augustine's response to apocalypticism. Um, we will be holding an event on Christians in times of catastrophe, um, Augustine's City of God with Russell Hittinger, Father Michael Sherwin, and Jen Frey. Um, we are grateful to all of our co-sponsors who helped extend the reach of our programming. 
Tonight's event is co-sponsored by America Media, the St. Benedict Institute, the Nova Forum, the Collegium Institute, the Beatrice Institute, the Institute for Faith and Culture, the Harvard Catholic Center, St. Paul University Catholic Center, and of course, our very own Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And we are grateful to you, our viewers. If you'd like to support us, you can donate at www.livingchristi.org donate. Um, but you can also help support us by advertising our events and sharing it through social media and sending on our emails. Um, but finally, on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute and our audience, I want to thank both of you today um, for helping shed light, uh, reveal a bit for us this present moment um, by looking at um, apocalypticism both in history and in our current times. Um, so thank you once more, um, Professor McGinn and Professor yep. Otten for a fantastic conversation. Great. Thank you.